This podcast is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. For more Rand analysis, reports, and commentary on issues at the forefront of today's policy debate, visit www.rand.org. Well, good afternoon. My name is Jamie Fiegelson. I'm the director of the Office of Congressional Relations at the Rand Corporation. I want to welcome you here today uh, to our briefing titled Repeal, Replace, Repair, or Improve the Future of the ACA. As you all in this room know, since the election, there's been a renewed debate about the future of the Affordable Care Act and what reforms are needed to our health care system. Today, our uh, Chrissy Eibner will talk about some of the major components of the proposed reforms or replacement plans, including the effects of various tax credit and subsidy proposals, repeal of or alternatives to the individual mandate, the potential impact of changes to rules regulating the individual insurance market, and implications of changes to the federal financing structure of Medicaid, as well as uh, other tax changes. The discussion is based on RAND research that has examined numerous proposals that have been put forward uh, for the last several years that span the political spectrum and will not focus on any single plan. And now I want to introduce Chrissy Eibner, who will be our speaker today. Chrissy is a senior economist and an associate director of the Health Services Delivery Systems Program at RAND. She's also the director of RAND Compare, a project that uses economic modeling to predict how individuals and employers will respond to major healthcare policy changes. Uh, and that is the, the project that will be the basis of much of what you see here today. Uh, so with that, Chrissy, welcome, and please start today's briefing. Thanks, Jamie, and thanks, everyone, for coming. Um, so as Jamie said, I'm going to be talking about uh, the repeal, replace, repair, or improve uh, different options for modifying, replacing, or otherwise changing the Affordable Care Act. Um, so as I think you all know, uh, the Affordable Care Act sought to expand health insurance coverage in the, in the United States through numerous mechanisms. So there was a Medicaid expansion for the poorest segment of the population. Um, there were penalties for people who don't obtain coverage to try to encourage everyone to enroll in insurance. Um, there were penalties for firms that don't offer coverage to try to stabilize the employer market and, and make sure that people have an option from their employer. Um, tax credits for moderate um, income individuals who didn't have access to employer coverage or Medicaid. And then guaranteed access to insurance. So insurance companies can no longer deny people coverage or charge higher prices to people with pre-existing conditions or exclude those conditions. Um, so that's sort of the crux of what the ACA did. Um, these provisions are interdependent, and some of the unpopular provisions, like the individual mandate, were sort of linked to some of the more popular provisions. So in particular, the notion that it, everyone would have guaranteed access to insurance and that you could purchase a policy regardless of your health status, um, this required some changes to ensure, A, that insurance companies would be willing to offer policies to those individuals, and B, to make sure that lower-risk, healthier people would enroll to stabilize premiums and stabilize the market. So in the ACA's framework, the individual mandate was a mechanism put in place to encourage younger and healthier people to enroll in health insurance policies. Um, along with that, there were insurance regulations that prevented insurance companies from denying coverage for, for, to people, from excluding pre-existing conditions, or for charging different prices to different people, with um, some exceptions. So older people can be charged more than younger people, but the oldest person in the uh, marketplace risk pool can be only charged three times as much as the youngest adult. Um, and there's no you know, differential charges by gender or other factors. Um, and finally, premium tax credits. And the tax credits serve two purposes. 
One is that they help people afford insurance if they don't have an offer of coverage from their employer, but also the tax credits work as an inducement to enroll in insurance, and that's another mechanism to get younger and healthier people into the market. So with the current uh, political climate, what's happening right now is considera consideration about how to repeal, replace, modify, or change the ACA. And so as Congress debates this path forward in health reform, there are a number of, I think, general goals that I think most would agree that uh, are something we, we want to, um, to maintain as a, as a country. So one is to maintain or reduce the number of people who are uninsured. Um, two is to avoid returning to an era of pre-existing conditions exclusions or possible denial of coverage. Three is to avert deficit increases that might occur under a full repeal. Um, so the CBO has scored full repeal of the ACA as deficit increasing, although as you may know, the, the recent bill on the table, the American Health Care Act, is deficit reducing. Um, curbing premium increases, so we've seen large premium increases in the individual market between 2016 and 2017, and so any reform would you know, want to stem those premium increases, and also reducing costs generally in, in the healthcare sector. So we've used RAND, uh, RAND we've developed a microsimulation model that allows us to estimate the effects of various healthcare policy changes. And the model is similar in spirit to the CBO's model in that it's designed to look at how uh, multifaceted reform with a lot of moving parts might affect people's health insurance enrollment decisions, firms offering decisions, um, premium prices, um, and ultimately how many people are insured and the cost to the federal government. So the way the compare works is that we use survey data um, to replicate the population of U.S. families and businesses. Then we use um, economic theory and past experience to, to estimate how families and businesses will respond to policy changes. Um, and then we look at the proposals that are under consideration and we build them into the model and then we estimate, based on our model, how families and firms will respond to those changes that are on the table. So as, as Jamie said, today I'm going to be talking about some of the general lessons learned that we have based on our analysis from Compare and also past experience. Um, this really dates back to the past, really we've been doing this for over 10 years. So we're going to bring to bear, I'm going to talk about sort of general lessons that we've learned over time. Focusing on the individual mandate, tax credits, individual market regulations. So this is the market that is highly affected by the ACA and any subsequent reform. This is the market for healthcare that is purchased not through an employer, but on your own through a private company um, or through an exchange. Age rating, and then Medicaid. Okay, so I'll start with a little discussion of the individual mandate. So the ACA uses both a carrot and a stick to try to get people to enroll in coverage. Uh, particularly younger and healthier people who might not on their own want insurance as much as an older or more sick person. Um, so the individual mandate requires most people to have coverage or pay a fine, uh, but then there are also tax credits that subsidize premiums for, for moderate income individuals. So what we've found in our, our analysis with the compare microsimulation model, and I think this is borne out in actual data that's been um, analyzed post-ACA, is that removing the mandate has actually less of an effect than the tax credits. So when we run the model without the mandate, we find that enrollment in the individual market falls by 20% and premiums increase by 7%. So that's evidence of adverse selection. This is because the you know some of the younger and healthier people are leaving, and that leads to an increase in premiums and a reduction in coverage. But it's not nearly as large as what we find when we remove the tax credits. So if we run the model and take out the ACA's tax credits, we get a 68% decline in enrollment and a 43% increase in premiums. 
So in general, this is telling us that people are more sensitive to the tax credits than they are to the individual mandate. And that's been borne out in some research. Um, so this is, uh, pulled this from a study by, um, by Freen and colleagues. Um, that used 2014 data to analyze what role various mechanisms played in, in the increase in insurance that we saw um, between 2013 and 2014. And they estimate that the premium tax credits accounted for 26% of the increase, and the Medicaid expansion uh, accounted for 44%. And then 30% of the increase was driven by other factors. And this includes response to the individual mandate, but other things as well, such as guaranteed issue. One of the things that's that's being considered right now as we as, as Congress looks to repeal or modify the ACA is really changing the tax credit structure. So the ACA's tax credits were you know pretty complicated in how they were laid out. They were available to people who are they are available to people with uh, incomes between 100 and 400 percent of the federal poverty level who don't have an offer of coverage from an employer or for Medicaid or from another affordable source. Um, they require people to pay a certain percentage of their income. Um, and then the federal government will subsidize the cost, the remaining cost of a plan up to the cost of the second lowest cost silver plan available in the individual's rating area. So this formula, the way that it works is that it varies by income. So lower income people who are in the eligible range pay a lower percent of their income towards this premium than a higher income person would. Um, they vary by geography because by, bench by, by basing the tax credit to the second lowest cost silver plan available to an individual, it takes into account geographic variation in price levels. And they vary by age because, uh, again, by basing it to the second lowest cost plan available to the individual, the tax credit is higher for older um, relative to younger people. Um, so there are a couple of criticisms of that approach. One issue is that the, um, this could lead to disincentives to work. For example, if you know someone, their income rises above 400% of the federal poverty level, that person may lose access to tax credits on the individual market, and that could cause people to reduce their labor, labor supply so that they remain eligible for this um, you know, fairly large benefit. Um, so that's a potential drawback. Another potential drawback of the tax credits is that because they are, they sort of insulate the individual from premium escalation, at least in that second lowest cost silver plan, um, it could be the case that providers and insurers have less of an incentive to keep prices down because, because they know that their market is kind of covered by the federal government in the event of a price increase. So one alternative way of dealing with this is to move to a flat tax credit. Um, so this would just be giving everyone the same tax credit regardless of income or other characteristics. Um, and that would decrease the incentive to, you know, to change your labor market decisions or to reduce your labor supply in response to the tax credit because regardless of how much you worked or how much you earned, you would get the same tax credit. And it also uh, potentially um, increases the consumer's incentive to negotiate and keep prices down um, when, when enrolling in health insurance. Um, so there are potential benefits to this approach. It also shields the government from cost increases because there's a set amount that's given and if premiums increase, the federal government doesn't necessarily have to pay the difference. Um, so that's one approach that's on the table. Um, more recently, we've seen a move to age-adjusted tax credits. So that's similar to the, tax, the flat tax across, approach, but it would be adjusted by age. And that accounts for the, um, the fact that older people pay more than younger people under most of the proposals. And in fact, most of the proposals are moving from the 3 to 1 rate banding to 5 to 1 rate banding. Interestingly, though, the age-adjusted tax credits don't increase in most of the proposals that, that we've seen as rapidly as premiums increase. So for example, under the AHCA, uh, the oldest person's premium is five times the amount of the youngest adults in the, in the um, individual market. 
but the tax credit for the oldest person is only twice the amount of the tax credit for the youngest person. Um, and then a final approach is a tax deduction. So that hasn't been discussed as much recently. Or I, I think some have, have promoted this, for example, Rand Paul. The tax deduction would allow you to deduct any health insurance expenditure from your income taxes. Um, one of the you know, potential benefits of this approach is that it's exactly, or it's very similar to what's done in the employer market right now. So right now, the there's an implicit subsidy for employer coverage because uh, employer coverage is not considered part of taxable compensation. And so money spent on an employer health insurance is, is tax-free, essentially. Um, and so a tax deduction for individual market coverage would sort of move in the same direction as the employer market. Um, but the drawback of a tax deduction approach, and this is true for the employer market too, is that it provides the greatest benefit to people who have the highest incomes because people with the highest incomes have the highest marginal tax rates and therefore stand to gain the most if they're able to exclude something from their income taxes. So let me uh, switch gears now and talk a little bit about um, ACA market regulations. So the Affordable Care Act, Care Act set a minimum standard for benefit generosity. Um, so it requires health plans to cover 10 essential health benefits. Um, it sets a minimum actuarial value for those plans of 60%. Um, so the actuarial value is the percent of expenditure of the, of the insured population that's covered by the plan as opposed to paid out of pocket by the consumer um, you know, in the form of deductibles and other cost sharing. So there's a minimum actuarial value requirement under the ACA. Um, there's also a maximum annual out-of-pocket limit for the consumer, so the consumer um, is sort of uh, go, uh, protected against having to spend more than uh, somewhere around $6,500 for an individual and that's $13,000 for a family. Um, so this sort of sets a benefit floor for individuals who are enrolled um, in the ACA. In addition to these minimum essential benefits, the ACA changed rating regulation um, so insurers can't charge different prices to different people based on gender or health status. They can vary premiums based on age, tobacco use, and geographic location. Um, but again, age can only vary by three to one. So the oldest adult is charged no more than three times as much as the youngest adult in the market. So the, the minimum benefits, so this is something that the AHCA hasn't changed the minimum benefits. Um, but it is something, and I think that's because that can't be done through reconciliation, but it is something on the table to potentially try to alter the minimum benefits. Um, so changes to minimum benefits have both pros and cons. So the upside of a minimum benefit is that it guarantees that people who need these benefits have access to affordable care. Um, the downside is that it potentially makes people pay for coverage they don't want, um, and it can raise cost of coverage for everyone. So there are, ups, there are pros and cons of the minimum benefits. Um, as Congress moves to consider whether they should alter the minimum benefits, there are, I think, you know, at least three major considerations to, to th think through. The first is, will allowing minimum, minimum benefit plans cause adverse selection in plans that are more comprehensive? So the, the issue here would be, if, if these low benefit plans are allowed on the market, will younger and healthier people gravitate into those low benefit plans, leaving older and sicker people in the more comprehensive plans. And if that's the case, will those comprehensive plans be affordable? Uh, will they continue to exist? Will they death spiral? Will you know, insurers want to offer those plans? And you know, this depends on how the market is structured and what the minimums are. And it's really hard to say without knowing more details. But it's something that is a potential uh, consideration and, and so something that I think will need to be addressed. Um, the second question is, will people in minimum benefits plans be eligible for tax credits? 
Um, so this is something the CBO has raised. Um, you know, potentially you could have plants that have very limited benefits and really could leave people exposed to significant risks if they did have a you know real significant health problem. Um, and the CBO has said that there's going to be a limit to what they'll score in terms of health insurance coverage. So a very limited plan might not fit the bill. CBO hasn't gone so far as to say exactly what that looks like, but it's a consideration, particularly, you know, I think on two levels. One is do we want to be using federal dollars to subsidize something that may be very, um, you know, not adequate coverage? And, you know, also from a more political perspective, if CBO is not going to score it, that, that affects the, the fate of legislation. Um, and then the third consideration is, can a person meet the continuous coverage requirement with the minimum benefit plan? So this is another, you know, the individual mandate in many of the proposed bills would be replaced by um, continuous coverage requirement where people can be upcharged or potentially even denied coverage if they don't maintain continuous coverage. But if you can maintain that continuous coverage requirement by buying a very inexpensive limited benefit policy, um, you can sort of just do that and then when you get sick, Possibly, you could move into a much more comprehensive plan, and that could create a lot of adverse selection into the more comprehensive plan. So this is a third consideration um, in designing a repeal and replace proposal. Now I'm going to turn to age rating. Um, so most proposals would relax the age rating under the ACA, moving from a 3 to 1 age rate band to a 5 to 1 age rate band. And so this is an analysis that we did that uh, compares what these rate bands would look like. So the red bar here is the 3 to 1 age rating band under the ACA, and the green bar is the 5 to 1. And you can see under 5 to 1 premiums would fall for younger adults and increase for older adults. And in our analysis, we find that the crossover point is at about age 47. Um, now this is, this is an analysis that holds the rest of the ACA constant, so it's not necessarily the case that 47 would be the crossover if everything else changed, but that's what we find when we hold everything else constant. One of the interesting things that we find also when we model this change to 5 to 1 rate banding under the current ACA policy is that because the federal government subsidizes the cost of uh, health insurance premiums over and above um, the individual's percentage contribution for those who are tax credit eligible on the marketplaces, um, when the age rating shifts and costs go up for older adults, a lot of those costs are actually borne by the federal government if it were to be done under the ACA. So this could be cost increasing for the federal government, although, of course, that wouldn't necessarily be the case if we move to another system where the tax credits are flat and based on age only. One consideration in thinking through, you know, moving to, to or changing the age bands or charging older people more is the question of whether it's health, you know, the, the reason to do this is that older people you know, spend more money on health care, and that by uh, charging them more, you're reducing premiums for the, lower, for, the, for the younger people and potentially encouraging more younger people to enroll. But the other really important consideration is health status. Um, so it's not, you know, some older people are very healthy and don't actually spend a whole lot of money. Um, there are healthy adults in all age ranges, and so one concern about you know, moving to 5 to 1 rate banding is that it becomes a healthy older adult views, may view health insurance as less desirable if it's much more expensive. One of the interesting things we found in some of our analyses is that really in all age groups, there are a lot of people spend, spend very little money. Um, uh, this, so what this chart is showing us is the percent of people that spend below the age rated amount in any given year. So this is what would be viewed as a good risk from the insurance company's perspective, meaning that they spend less than the premium and so the insurance company you know, retains the rest. Um, of, of the premium expenditure. 
And you can see, and we did it here for three to one rate banding in red and full community rating in blue. Um, so the red is probably more, more relevant. Um, but even with the three to one rate banding, we find that 80% or 81% of adults in the 55 to 64 year old age range actually in a given year are spending less than their premium amount. Um, so those older adults are good risks, and in some sense, it's even better for the, the insurance company to have an older adult that's healthy in the market than a younger adult that's healthy, because for the older adult, you can charge them three times as much. So that really improves your risk pool if, if you're having older adults who don't spend a lot of money. And so if those people start to leave, you know, that could sort of backfire. Um, so, so I think what the me message is is that, you know, I, I think that age banding could help to improve the risk pool, but it can only go so far because there's an imperfect correlation between age and health status. Um, so let me turn now to Medicaid. Um, so some of the proposed changes to Medicaid financing that are on the table are block grants and per capita caps. So they're somewhat similar. A block grant, so, so right under current policy, the federal government pays a certain percentage of Medicaid spending. Um, so for people who were eligible prior to the ACA, the federal government pays between 50 and 75% of the cost, and it varies by state. Um, and if expenditures go up, the, state, the federal government's share goes up, and the state government's share goes up proportionally. So it's always the federal government paying 50 to 75% of the cost. What a block grant would do is that it would convert the federal contribution to a lump sum amount, and then give that amount to the states, and then index that amount to the states over time with, based on inflation, and there could be a number of different inflation factors that are used. Um, but it wouldn't matter how much was spent then. If the, if the um, you know, spending increased more than the rate of growth in the block grant, the state would be on the hook for finding a way to finance that additional spending. Um, per capita caps are similar, but they're based they're on an enrollee basis, so there would be a, a lump sum per enrollee. And this could be a different <coughs> amount depending on the type of enrollee, so you could have a different amount for disabled individuals versus you know, non-disabled adults versus kids. Um, but, but the bottom line is that for each enrollee, the state would get a lump sum amount. That lump sum could be adjusted over time for some for form of inflation. Um, but again, if spending exceeded the lump sum amount, it would be the state that would be on the hook to pay for that excess. Um, so some critical decisions in, in Medicaid reform. First is figuring out who, if we move to a block grant or per capita cap, who is eligible under that? Is, is the expansion population going to be included? Or are they going to be given an, uh, an allot allotment amount under a per capita cap? And in the uh, AHCA, they are. How is the funding level set? Um, how does it adjust over time? That's actually really critical. As time goes on, these inflation factors can really uh, drive a wedge between what the um, state would get under pre under current law versus what they will get under the future law, um, and that it can increase over time, and it depends on the inflation factors, um, and then what's the amount per capita. So this is what ACA is doing, and this is uh, just an oversimplification, but for, for people who were eligible under pre-ACA pre rules, ACA is, set, is using the 50 to 75% spending um, federal reimbursement as the target for the 2016 block grant amount. So they would be, well, 2016 is passed, but that amount would be set based on 2016 spending and then indexed over time based on medical CPI. Um, for the newly eligible population, they would continue to get some type of per capita allotment, but it would vary depending on when the person enrolled. So if the person had enrolled prior to December 31st, 2019, they would get a per capita allotment based on the 90% FMAP, which is an enhanced FMAP that was offered to uh, Medicaid expansion states. Um, but if they became, if they enrolled after December 1st, 2019, they would get an allotment ba based on the 50s to 75% of spending. Um, 
And so there's a lot of churn in and out of the Medicaid program over time. You know, studies have estimated that 25 to 50% of the population moves off, off the program in a given year um, because of income changes and other factors. And so um, it's, it's likely that these people who were eligible before December 31st, 2019 would sort of churn off relatively quickly and we'd have a system where um, the majority of folks were getting the older FMAP. So what this is likely to do and what the CBO has estimated is this shifts cost to states over time. Um, and that's because recent growth in per capita Medicaid costs have exceeded the medical CPI. Um, and the expansion states face kind of a double reduction in the, their federal contribution because not only is there a wedge between Medicaid growth and medical CPI, but also uh, the expansion states face a lower contribution for adults that were made newly eligible by the ACA. So, this is, you know, it's hard to predict exactly what will happen because there are so many different ways in which states could respond. One thing they could do is just pay the difference. Um, you know, that may not be feasible for a lot of states, but it's an option. Um, states could reduce eligibility. They could reduce provider reimbursement. Um, they could institute cost-sharing requirements or premiums for some enrollees, um, or they could add work requirements, and, and there are probably other things they could do as well. So there are a lot of different responses, and so how these block grants or per capita caps affect the Medicaid program will really depend on states' response. So then the last thing that I wanted to turn to was the Cadillac tax versus an exclusion cap for employer-sponsored coverage. As I mentioned earlier, the uh, current spending on employer-sponsored health insurance is not subject to income or payroll taxes, and that creates a significant tax advantage. The CBO has estimated that it's about $260 billion annually that sort of foregone tax revenue as a result of the ESI exclusion. Um, so this tax advantage for ESI has been criticized by economists on a number of different grounds, and I've listed the main ones here. Um, first, it gives more benefit to people with higher incomes, because if you have a higher income, you face a higher marginal tax rate, and so the ability to exclude something from your, your taxes is, is more beneficial if you're higher versus lower income. Um, it also might lead to overconsumption of care, and the argument here is that if a dollar spent on health insurance is not taxed and a dollar spent on some other goods and services is taxed, then you're sort of incentivized to spend more money on health care, and that in turn leads to health care cost inflation. Um, and then finally, it reduces the federal tax revenues. Um, so, so there are several reasons not to, to, you know, to, to criticize the employer tax advantage. And so the ACA instituted the Cadillac tax to try to limit the employer tax exclusion over time. So the way the Cadillac tax works is that it's a 40% excise tax on health plans above a certain limit. Um, and, and that 40% tax is, um, would most economists think, be borne by the consumer. So it would really raise the price of premiums. And there are two responses that firms could take. One is to reduce their benefit generosity or find other ways to cut costs so that their, their premiums are below the Cadillac tax threshold, or they could choose to pay the tax. Um, in some of the alternative proposals, what we see is an exclusion cap. And so that's a similar in spirit to the Cadillac tax, but rather than charging a 40% excise tax on spending above a certain limit, it just says that spending above the, a certain limit, you know, the premium spending is above a certain lim limit would become eligible, would become taxable. And so you wouldn't avoid taxes on that, on that spending over the limit. Um, now, in theory, there could be a difference between the, these two approaches. The 40% excise tax under the Cadillac tax is a very high tax, and if in, in employers didn't change their behavior and just continued offering plans above that limit, that 40% tax would be borne by their workers, including low-income and high-income workers. Some have argued that the exclusion cap is more equitable because if the tax is, if, if it's just that the premiums above a certain amount are excluded from your income tax, 
um, lower income people who pay lower income taxes are going to benefit or be harmed less or have to pay fewer taxes as a result of that change because they have a lower marginal tax rate. So it's sort of the opposite of the ESI tax advantage argument. Um, so in theory, the exclusion cap could be more equitable. We've actually analyzed this and found that it doesn't make much of a difference. And the reason is that most employers would just scale back their offerings so that they're below the caps anyhow. And as a result, it's the same effect regardless of whether it's an exclusion cap or the Cadillac tax. So um, just in terms of you know, what could be done, a lot of these, you know, what I've discussed is you know, presented trade-offs, that there are trade-offs between um, you know, insuring more people and spending less money on tax credits um, and that sort of thing. There is one, you know, and it's interesting, the Cadillac tax has been pretty unpopular. As you know, it was delayed until 2020, and ACA would delay it further until 2025. Um, what we have found in some of our analysis that is that targeting the ESI tax advantage um, is one way to actually insure more people at a lower cost than the ACA. So when we've looked at this, we, um, we found that a proposal that would get rid of the employer tax exclusion, give everybody a tax credit, but have those tax credits be larger for lower income people uh, than higher income people, could lead to a change of coverage relative to the ACA of four million increase um, while reducing the deficit by 14 billion in a one year period. Okay, so that's, that's really all that I had to discuss today. Just in conclusion, a few thoughts. Um, one is that we consistently find that subsidies, tax credits, are more effective than penalties uh, for inducing insurance enrollment. And that's really an important part of expanding insurance coverage. Um, and, and that's simply because health insurance is so expensive. And so lower-income you know, lower people are less likely to be insured. Uh, they're more at risk for losing insurance. And they're more, less likely to be able to afford it. Uh, so these subsidies are important if we want to, if the goal is to increase the number of people who are insured. But also, I think a key point is that there are tensions between many of the goals. So this goal of expanding coverage, yeah, there's some tension between that and the goal of reducing cost. Um, and that's apparent in this, in this tax credit subsidy uh, issue about how, how far do we want to go and how much do we want to spend in tax credits in order to induce people to enroll. Um, there's also tension between uh, targeted tax credits that um, focus, uh, you know, give a greater benefit to lower income people and incentivizing work. You know, again, because if you're putting a lot of money towards lower income people, it means if someone, you know, works more or gets a better job and finds themselves above the threshold for eligibility, they lose access to a key benefit. Um, there's tension between pr protecting the sickest and costliest people in the population and preserving choice. So policies that would try to, uh, you know, protect the sickest and costliest by, for example, imposing minimum benefits requirements, reduce choice for people who maybe don't want those requirements. Um, and then finally, there's tension between limiting the federal government's cost liability and, and the possibility of shifting costs to consumers and to states. Um, and I wish that I had a lot of answers for these questions. It's easy to point them out. Um, but uh, but I, I look forward to seeing where the debate goes in the coming months. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about these issues and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries.